1996, grower H. Hurley of Fugway, Varina, North Carolina, grew the world's longest green bean, an astounding 48 and three quarter inch, that's a four foot green bean. I don't even know how to grow like a normal green bean, but that was a four foot green bean. And if you've never heard of Hurley, maybe you've heard of Hank Aaron. Aaron holds most of baseball's key uh, power hitting records, the record for the most queer runs, uh, bat batted in, extra base hits, total bases, and of course, second only to Barry Bonds for home runs. Maybe you don't care much about beans or baseball. You say, show me the money. Okay, let's talk about billionaire Warren Buffett. When Buffett was 10 years old on a trip to New York City, he requested uh, that he was able to stop by the New York Stock Exchange. Not a very common thing for 10-year-olds. Uh, and then he, um, at the age of 11, bought his first three shares. And today, Buffett is considered one of the most successful investors in the world and is referred to as the Oracle or the Sage. I, I want to be called the Oracle. That's pretty cool, right? You know, the one thing these three individuals have in common is they stand out as preeminent within their field, within whatever it is they've applied themselves to. Whether it's growing beans or baseball or making billions, they have demonstrated a kind of insider relationship to some aspect of the world. They've gained this through investing themselves in that particular area, giving their blood, sweat, and tears, and applying themselves over time in order to become the leaders and luminaries within that particular aspect of the world that they shape. And I want to start off by asking a question tonight. What would it look like if someone had this kind of preeminence, this kind of supremacy, not only in a particular aspect of the world, what if they knew better than anyone else, not only how to grow beans or play baseball or make billions, but they knew every aspect, every sphere of existence, every facet of life, every modality of our world, the physical, the psychological, the social, the economic, the biological, the aesthetic, the mathematical, the lingual, the juridical, the analytic, we could go on and on. What if there was a person that knew the world with that kind of math master, mastering expertise, that kind of preeminence? Well, in today's text, the Apostle Paul makes the astounding claim that there is a person like this. Makes the claim that Jesus of Nazareth was not only an amazing example of glad self-giving love, not only an amazing paradigm of mercy and grace, but that he is the preeminent one. That he is the one who has absolute mastery over every facet of this world. And because of that, he is the one, the only one that can save this world. See, the day the Apostle Paul makes this astounding claim in this series that we've been in, it's our second week, and the series is called, Who is Jesus? And we've been looking at this section of the Apostle's letter to the church at Colossae, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, which is just, you know, Josh is always so nice. He always gives me, you know, he always invites me in and gives me these great texts to preach. I really appreciate that, Josh. Um, and so this amazing text, it's, it's a fascinating, skillfully worded, rhythmically balanced section. This is why scholars tend to agree that this is a poem or maybe an early hymn. What we do know is it gives us a very clear picture into what early Christians claimed about Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do today is I want to draw attention to two major movements in this poem. 
twice in these six verses, the first three verses and then the second three verses, twice in these six verses, Paul makes a statement about Christ. He amplifies it with the term firstborn and then explains how Christ is firstborn in relationship to the world. So in verses 15 to 17, Paul speaks of Christ's preeminence as the firstborn of creation. And then in verses 18 to 20, Paul speaks of Christ's preeminence as the firstborn of the dead. So what I want to do is I want to look at these two ways in which he sees Christ as preeminent. And then I want us to put them together because I believe when we understand what Paul's saying here about Christ's preeminence, if we really enter into this, we cannot see the world the same way. We cannot live our lives the same way. It's absolutely transformative. So we're going to look at Paul's claims that Christ is the firstborn of creation, then his claim that he's the firstborn from the dead, and then we're going to put those together and see how this is life-changing. First, Paul says that Christ is the firstborn of creation. In verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. He is the image of the invisible God. Who is this God? Well, Paul is a Jew, and for Paul as a Jew... God would be the God of Judaism. God would be the God who is the creator of heaven and earth. And Paul here claims that Christ conforms to this basic understanding of Judaism, namely that Israel's God is the creator of everything. And, and, and Paul would say not just Israel's God, but Jesus Christ as Israel's God is the creator of everything. And so to line and distinguish Christ's role in creation, Paul uses this term firstborn. Now, as Pastor Josh said last week, this does not mean that Christ is the first thing in creation. For it says that Christ is the creator of all things. So he can't, he can't be both the creator and at the same time a thing that's created, right? So why does Paul use this term firstborn? You know, in the Old Testament, we read that it was with wisdom that God created the world in all its beauty and complexity, for instance, Psalm 104, 24 says, O Lord, how manifold are your work. In wisdom have you made all. The earth is full of your creatures. Now, in the book of Proverbs, this is unpacked even more. In the book of Proverbs chapter 8, speaking about God's wisdom in creation, the writer of the book of Proverbs begins to personify wisdom and speak about wisdom as this primordial thing that was birthed from God uh, before there was time, and then participated in creation. Listen to Proverbs chapter 8, starting in verse 24. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there. He's speaking of the wisdom of God. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in the world that was made and delighting in mankind who was formed. Paul says that the divine wisdom by which God created this world, that wisdom that is personified, that existed before the world began, that existed from time out of mind, this wisdom that was by God's side, rejoicing in the beauty and the diversity and the glory of this world and the glory of the human form and all of the modalities of this world, that that wisdom has been identified and it's been identified in Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus of Nazareth 
was not one cult figure, one religious leader among many, but he is the creator through whom the universe was made. Other religious leaders and cult figures included. (laughs) He created it all. He is the firstborn. And so we have to be careful, and I'm going to say this a few times in this message, okay? We have some disadvantages being born in the period we're in. We're in the late modern period, okay? So this word firstborn strikes us probably a little bit of family systems theory. Some of you are thinking like, yeah, I was secondborn or I was thirdborn. And oh, you know, my first, the oldest one was like this. And you're thinking birth order. You got to get that out of your head, okay? That, that stuff is modern thinking, all right? It's not bad. It's just not what Paul is going for. Paul's not thinking about the arrangement of similar things when he uses the word firstborn. Paul is using the ancient sense of the word firstborn, which is all about preeminence. The firstborn was the one that got everything. The firstborn had the full inheritance. The firstborn was the most important above and beyond any of the others. It was a unique status of a particular thing. And that's what Paul is driving home when he says firstborn. He says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things. And that is where the accent is. Jesus Christ is a unique, preeminent creator of all things. Everything in this world comes from and depends on Jesus. Or as the 15th century theologian Nicholas of Cusa put it, Jesus is non-elude. And for those of you who aren't fresh on your Latin, non-elude means not another thing. He's not another thing to be placed beside other things in this world. No, he exists in a radically asymmetrical relationship to everything else because everything in this world depends on Jesus. Not only the rocks and the trees and the whales and the butterflies, they do, but it says that he is the creator of all things, thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities. In other words, cultural structures and powers, be it politicians or social media or transnational corporations or universities or sports franchises or school boards. Now, Jesus didn't make those, but Jesus created the systems where which the potentiality for these things could emerge. Jesus Christ is the preeminent one. And anything that exists that coheres that causes flourishing in this world, we can accredit to him. And if this is not high enough, Paul goes on. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Again, just like wisdom was pre-existent, as the theologians say, Christ was begotten, not made, of the Father. Eternally, eternally being begotten of the Father. He's before all things as the preexistent one. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was in the beginning with God. And again, to our modern ears, we need to be careful because when we hear that Christ is before all things, we can miss the thrust of what this is saying. You know, we hear the word before and as moderns, uh, we don't hear what we should be hearing. The word modern actually comes from the word mode earn. Mode is the word for fashion. And for something to be mode earn, it means that it is concerned with what is the newest thing. What is the most present thing? That's what has the weight. We as moderns have a certain bias against what's gone before us. 
it's really funny, and we won't, won't go into this, but if you study the history of thought, you see around the beginning of early, early modern period, 15th century, the thinking of almost the entire Western civilization shifts. Instead of looking back, it starts looking forward. Instead of appealing to ancient sources, it's looking out into the future. And so as moderns, when we hear that he's before all things, we just miss the thrust of what Paul's saying. See, for ancients, to be before meant to have a permanence, an unchangingness, an invincibleness, an advantage beyond all advantages. And maybe to help us understand this as moderns, we can think of Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. You know, in Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell says it takes 10,000 hours of dedicated practice before you become an expert in something. And he uses the illustration of the Beatles. and says, you know, the Beatles, at first they were terrible. They're playing in like, I don't know, German pubs or who knows what. And it's just, it's no good. But they practice and they practice and they put in their 10,000 hours and they became the Beatles, you know? And, and, and Gladwell's point is that if you have the time, you can reach expertise. Now, what do you do with a being that has unlimited time? What kind of advantage does that being have? What kind of expertise does that being have? What kind of preeminence does that being have when they have the advantage of countless time before the world was born? That is what we need to hear when we hear that he was before all things. He is indeed before all things. But then Paul doesn't stop then. Paul is just going crazy here talking about the preeminence of Christ. He goes on and he says, he's before all things and in him all things hold together. I love this. You know, Paul is speaking metaphysically. Now, I don't mean in terms of like weird occult stuff. The word metaphysics is a philosophy term and it means the study of reality. And Paul is making claims about the nature of reality here. And he's saying that the fundamental basis of all things that exist is something that our post-enlightenment minds struggle to imagine. Namely, that the entire universe and all, all of its complexity and beauty and diversity has below it and underneath it personal agency. You know, with Newtonian physics, the world became a machine. It was disenchanted, and we viewed everything in terms of state-to-state -state causation. Thankfully, Einsteinian physics came along, and the material universe was no longer viewed primarily as a mechanistic, predictable series of cause and effects. And in fact, if you look at the sciences, Christians tend to rush into the physics because the more theoretical you get into physics, the more the world becomes kind of a strange place, kind of a spiritual place, right? Um, it's no longer seen as this closed system of interlocking mechanistic finite causes. And Paul here is closer to the latter, closer to that Einsteinian understanding of the world. He seems to suggest that Christ is the key ingredient, the axiomatic agency underneath all causation. That divine personal agency is the final determining factor for both the existence and incitement of the cosmos. In other words, Paul gives us a very enchanted view of the world. He holds all things together. And again, before the Enlightenment, this was not hard for people to imagine. I mean, we still think of the Native Americans who, like, they have a very spiritual view of, of the world. And for some reason, we have space for that. We think that's right. There's something right about that. It's almost a nostalgic longing, I think, when we see certain tribal groups that don't just see the world in terms of pure uh, mechanistic and materialistic and eminent frameworks. But you have to remember that before the modern period, before the Enlightenment, everyone tended to view this world the way, this way. I mean, John Calvin would say, if you see a leaf on a tree, 
you see the work of the Holy Spirit. If you see a blade of grass, you see the work of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is the Spirit of life and nothing is alive without the work of the Holy Spirit. Do that this week. Walk around and when you see something alive, anything alive, say work of the Holy Spirit. Work of the Holy Spirit. Look at your hand. Work of the Holy Spirit. It's living and that is the Spirit of life. See, Paul here is pulling in that enchanted view of the world. Paul says that when you see things working, when you see things holding together, when you see things cohering, when you see things flourishing, you can thank the pre-existent Christ, the creator of all things, the wisdom of God by which elephants and atoms and social health and psychological health and all things that function and are reaching their fullness are operating. You can thank Christ who is the source behind all of those things. And again, I need just to be honest about this. If you're not a Christian, I've got some, some news for you. You're going to need to open your imagination if you're going to buy into this stuff. You need to open your imagination. And we're, I'm just going to be unapologetic because that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying you have to open your imagination to see the world right. You have to look deeper. You have to look beyond what's imminent. Paul says, Christ causes the physical and biological and psychological and social and economic and aesthetic and mathematical and linguistic and juridical and analytic and all the modalities that we see operating in this world. And if you're going to be a Christian, you need to look deeper and you can pray to God to open your eyes, to see the world aright and to see that underneath and beyond and behind it all is the one who put it here. In him we live and move and have our being. Christ is all around us. Christ is underneath us. Anything that exists, anything that's cohering and flourishing has been put there by the creator of all things, Jesus Christ. Christ is the firstborn of creation, the eternally preexisting wisdom and agency through which this world was created. He holds preeminence as a source of the created order. But Paul doesn't stop there. Paul shows us one other preeminence. In verse 18, Paul shifts from Christ as firstborn of creation, the preeminent source that formed and holds this world together, to Christ as preeminent of the, as the firstborn of the dead. Look what it says. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So Paul is shifting from creation to the new creation. Paul is shifting from creation to redemption. In fact, he starts this section with, by saying he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What is Paul talking about when he says he's the firstborn from the dead? This title, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, is referring to Christ's resurrection, as the first to be raised from the dead, Christ is the founder and initiator of not only an elevated form of humanity, but of a new era in which the entire cosmos, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, will be freed from the destructive and deforming power of sin and death and transformed and enlarged and unleashed in radical, vibrant freedom. Jesus is source and example of this resurrection life, and he opens the way for all those who trust him to also be a part of this form of existence. Many people think that Christianity teaches that when you die, you will be a soul floating around in heaven, maybe playing on a harp, 
you know, in a cloud. That is not what the Bible teaches. It has such a grand view, such a more powerful view. The promise of Christianity is that we, along with the entire created order, will be transformed like the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, the resurrected body of, is raised in glory. He says this, for the perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable body puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass this saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Christ is the first one that stood over death as he vanquished it. And he said, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Christ, who is the genius, the preeminent one who created this world, knew the secret to go into this world and to unlock and to undo the power of death. Resurrection literally means the undoing of death. He is the beginning. He is the beginning of the entire cosmos being swept up in this new kind of existence. The beginning, that is a weird name. But Christ's resurrected body was not like any other body that existed before. Another Latin phrase, sui generis. That means the first of its kind. And people and things who are attached to Christ will also become pulled into this new kind of existence. Not only the church, which is, just, which is his body, but the entire creation will be pulled into this. In fact, Paul in Romans talks about the creation longing for this day when it will be uplifted and elevated. Romans 8.20, for the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay, to death, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. It's been groaning. It has seen what happened to the resurrected body of Christ. Somehow creation knows. And it knows it was made for that. And it longs to see itself set free into that freedom. So the potentialities that Christ built into this creation have yet to be tapped. The deep dynamic has, has yet to be unleashed. As Rowan William writes, the world seems to have a capacity for relation with God that can enlarge and transform it into an entirely different way of being. All the fullness of God dwelled in him. And that fullness now awaits to be unleashed in this cosmos. See, Jesus was sinless and therefore he was charged with pleroma, fullness, the fullness of God's spirit. It was the fullness that made him the catalyst. It makes his resurrected body the catalyst for the cosmos. He's not only an example of what is to come, but he is the incendiary enzyme. He is, in his very embodiment, the incitement, the stimulant that will cause a chain reaction that whatever is joined with that body will then become transformed as the pleroma, the fullness, spreads out into whatever it touches. I know this sounds like craziness. It is. We need to own how crazy our faith is. But we believe in resurrection. This is nutty. But this is what the Bible teaches. We need to make Christianity strange again because this is strange stuff. And most of us can live in the luxury of not believing it, really, because we don't really attempt to wrestle with these crazy, crazy statements that Paul's making. Jesus Christ, as the incendiary enzyme, the incitement, the chain reaction, his body, 
will one day pull the entire cosmos into an entirely different way of existing in fullness. So why did Jesus Christ come? Why did he live? Why did he die? Why was he raised in glory? Yes, he came in order to show us what human existence was meant to be. He came to die for you and me, but it wasn't just that. He came to be the chemical reaction, the catalyst for a new world. He came to reconcile all things, it says in Colossians verse 20. He came in order to establish an entirely new cosmos, and we are going to be a part of that cosmos. And if you think COVID has the potential of spreading, wait till you see what happens when something touches the resurrected body of Jesus, which is filled with life. Nothing stops that when it's joined with Christ. He came to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Now, John 3.16 is probably the best known, at least uh, the most quoted verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And this is a marvelous declaration that we need to share with people. We need to make sure we let people know that God has come in the person of Jesus in order that we might be reconciled with God, in order that we might know what eternal life is, that Christ has lived and died a sacrificial death so that we could be accepted into the intimate fellowship with God that is possible. And this is good news. But often we forget that this beautiful message of individual salvation is framed with the word cosmos. For God so loved the cosmos the larger created order. And that is exactly the thrust of what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying in verse 20 that Christ's sights are set very broad. They're very big. They're the entire whole creation. He made it and he died to redeem it. See, when Christ sees this world, he says, that's mine. I made that. I don't know how you feel when you make something. I'm pretty easy. Like I just make something that's kind of pathetic. I'm like, I made that. You know, I'm pretty excited. Christ made this world in all of its complexities. He created it. He delighted in it, we read in scripture. He was rejoicing over it. What was he rejoicing over? I don't know. I get pretty stoked when I see nature. I'm sure that was part of it. But he was also rejoicing in all the beauty, complexity, modalities of this world. Some of you can talk to Hugh Ross or, you know, Larry James afterward and find out more about the complexity of our universe, right? But Christ was rejoicing in his creation. And when he sees it in all of its beauty and diversity and glory, he looks at it and he cries, that's mine. I made it. And when this world became corrupted by the destructive forces of sin and death, Christ did not sit back. There was no one else that could go and fix it. He made it. He knew it. He was preeminent. And he personally invested himself in this world. And he entered into the very depths and heart of this world in a way that we know is a mystery in order to fix this world. One of the early church fathers describes it as someone who has a beautiful object that gets dropped, that it gets falls into the dirt, dark, murky sea and goes down into the mud. And that person, at the risk of their own death, strips down and dives deep down, down. And there in the, in the pressure, in the murk, in the mire, almost dying to the point of just completely risking it all, they pull it out of the mud and they bring it up. And that's what Christ has done to this cosmos. So Christ looks at the world and he says, that's mine. I redeemed it. That's mine. 
He came to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth and heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Through a deep magic, mysteriously, from the inside, on the cross, he absorbed the darkness and sin. He undid the power of evil that was present in this world through blood, sweat, tears. All we know is that it was at a great cost. He came to redeem this world. And he gave proof of the repair job. How do you know? He, pro- he proved that he repaired it. He showed his resurrected body. This was the first item of the incorruptible world that he is going to bring. This is his world. This is his world. He redeemed it. He says, this is mine. I created it. This is mine. I redeemed it. Perhaps Abraham Kuyper summed it up best when he famously said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence in which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, that is mine. Josh has it memorized. I feel embarrassed. I should have it as memorized as you. That's like my man, Abraham Kuyper. Let me read it one more time. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, that is mine. All things in heaven and earth, Christ says, that is mine. And when Kuyper gave this quote, he was speaking at the inauguration of a Christian university. And, and, and what Kuyper's point is that Christ's investment in our world and all of its different realities should change the way that Christians see their disciplines. And then he would say, if you're going into medicine or law or sociology or the arts or philosophy or biology or linguistics or computer science or mathematics or business or astronomy, architecture, engineering, even fashion studies, imagine, come on. There is no aspect of our human existence where Christ, who is absolutely preeminent, the complete master and expert, has not left his fingerprint. It is his. This world is his. He made it. He redeemed it. This, you know, Christ is all about this world. Every square inch of this world. In the same speech, Kuiper says, when Christ died and cried out, it is finished on the cross. It not only declared our salvation was accomplished, but it declared the salvation of the cosmos, the liberation of the world, the beginning of the redemption of all things. You know, a lot of Christians right now are tempted. I'm tempted to just sit here during this COVID time and be like, Jesus, just, just beam me up. (laughs) Just get me out of here, Jesus. I need out now. He didn't come so that we could escape the world into some ethereal place. He didn't come so that we could live in some religious fairy tale land of fantasy. He didn't come so we could run off into the sunset with Jesus as our BFF or boyfriend or whatever and leave it all behind. No, if we have that viewpoint, we miss that Jesus Christ came and he was on a mission of holy worldliness. Every square inch was his and he was going to reclaim it a mission of holy worldliness. If all things in heaven and earth were in the purview of Jesus Christ, then those who follow Jesus will take up this vantage point. They will take this world very serious because this world, again, in all of its aesthetic and quantitative and biological and blah, 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 with all of its potentiality and diversity and plurality and beauty, all of it, that's what Christ came to reconcile to himself. That's what Colossians teaches So Christians, what are the inches of your life? Maybe it's pretty simple these days. But, you know, being able to see our world, whatever it is we're investing in, 
as something that was created by Christ and redeemed by Christ changes the way we see it. Do you absorb the realities of your world as part of what Christ has made? And do you invest yourself in the square inches of your world as an act of holy obedience, following in your Lord who himself was invested? For some, it means taking your parenting very serious. For others, it means taking your career in architecture or business or education or painting or whatever it is that you put your hand to with, with a lot of passion and care. Why? Because you're displaying that God so loved every square inch of this world. And whatever inch you are applying, to, applying yourself to, you are gonna love it with that same passion. And there's a lot of gifted people in this church and, you know, this is how we glorify God, by taking the stuff of our world serious because God takes this world serious. But maybe you're not a Christian. And you say, you know, I've held off on becoming a Christian. You know, I, I just like too many things I shouldn't like. You know, I like sex and drinking or whatever it is. And you know what the problem is? The problem is, is you're just not worldly enough. That's why you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian because you don't see the world in all of its glory and beauty, the same way that Christianity does. You don't have that same unblushing vision of hope for this world that Christianity does. That God is invested in this world, that he's come in person to heal as a catalyst, as the new creation, to bring it into a level of exponential flourishing, and that he's invited us to be a part of that project. And so if you're not a Christian, I just want to say, don't you want to be a part of that? Don't you want to be a part of this world that Christ is going to bring? Don't you want to share in this resurrection life? Don't you want to know what it's like to be so filled with life that you are bubbling over? Jesus, came, Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it explosively, overflowing, abundantly, running through your veins. That's the resurrection that Christ has invited us into. People of God, the universe is going to sing. I know it's a dark time, but the universe is going to sing. We know that because we believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The preeminent one has begun his great work of renewing all things. Will you join him in his work of holy worldliness. Praise be to God. Please join me in prayer. Lord, you love this world. You created this world. You were rejoicing as this world was made. Lord, you know this world and all of its complexity and fullness and beauty and glory. You know human beings inside and out. You know all of our potentiality. You know, Lord, everything that exists in this world. And Lord Jesus, when you see redwoods burning that you made, I'm sure it breaks your heart. And Lord Jesus, when you see human beings and society not flourishing as you desired for it to do, I'm sure it breaks your heart. And Lord, when you see viruses spreading and causing disaster, I'm sure it breaks your heart. But Lord, you have promised us in your resurrection that there is hope in this dark time. May we take serious, Lord, this world. May we take it just 
some, some sense of seriousness, Lord, the inches of our life, the things that you have given us, Lord, may we do it as an act of obedience because you are the God of holy worldliness. You so love this world. You so cared about this world. Lord, help us to see you, what you have done. Help us to embrace this world in your name. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.